invite your attention to Romans chapter 12, where we'll read verses 1 and 2 for our sermon text today. Romans chapter 12, reading at verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto him, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There will be some connection with this message with last week's message, which was conformity to Christ. We see the word conform and the word transform in the second verse here. So there is an overlapping to some of the things you may have heard last week, which is natural in the scripture. We're going to title this sermon, A Living Sacrifice, from verse 1, but it synonymously could be titled from verse 1, Our Reasonable Service. So either of those could take the title and the other could become a subtitle without any damage whatsoever. But think about a living sacrifice. That phrase or our title in and of itself is what we would call an oxymoron if you think about it. Now, that's kind of a strange word to many of us. We don't think about that and toss that word around very much, do we? But an oxymoron is a phrase or something that seems to have contradictory ideas together. And a living sacrifice is certainly an oxymoron. I think if you look it up in the dictionary, the dictionary may give you something like sweet sorrow. Yeah, how can, you know. But yet, Bible says that sorrow is good for the soul, doesn't it? In fact, better than laughter in that regard. So sweet sorrow would be an oxymoron, and certainly a living sacrifice is an oxymoron. If you're familiar with the Bible and all of the sacrifices that were uh, taught and performed throughout the Bible. Uh, when you think about a real sacrifice, biblically speaking, you're talking about something that was killed or ended up dead, aren't you? And also, when you think about it in the Bible, like in the Old Testament economy, you're talking about something that was very non-personal, wasn't it? Because it referred to another usually a third party, right? There is God, the creator, there is the creature, and then there was the sacrifice that was the in-between third party, of course. So a living sacrifice is certainly a different twist in that regard to what we usually think of when we think of, of a sacrifice. But Paul is writing to believers at Rome when he says this, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself, your bodies, a living sacrifice. Now, we want to say something at the very beginning here, that in order to be a living sacrifice or to accomplish what Paul is setting forth here, involves a conflict and in some sense a battle between two things. And those two things are clearly stated in verse 2. 
If you as a believer in Christ are going to be a living sacrifice as you should be and as I should be, then the only way this will be accomplished will be by be not, in verse 2, conformed to this world, and be ye, in verse 2, transformed. So, again, I want to make that clear right at the beginning. Those are not separate things. That is what a living sacrifice is. Defined for us there in verse 2. Now the first thing we would note here by way of introduction is Paul's earnestness as he approaches this subject for them. And let me briefly say here, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know that it is perhaps the meatiest of the books of the New Testament, especially doctrinally when it came to Paul. And Paul's style was, as Christ was and as ours is, you lay out the doctrine first and then you make a practical application because that's the only way it really works. Do I need to say that again? I probably ought to. Because we live in a day and age here where practicality and practical Christianity has superseded doctrine. And that's why it's all failing. You know, we're living in an age of how-to Christianity. And it's garbage. It's pie in the sky. You say, well, you're being critical. Well, I guess I am. But anything practical will not work unless it's seated on a firm foundation. And the clear example in Scripture is you don't eat dessert first. You eat the the meat and the vegetables first. Then you bring on the dessert. So the writers of the New Testament in Christ laid down the doctrine and then they made a practical application on top of it. So really when we get to chapter 12 here, that's what Paul is doing. He's starting the practical application based on the foundation he's laid before and ahead in the previous chapters. But he begins with this earnestness, and I want you to see this. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Okay, that's very earnest. That is passionate That is heartfelt. That's not off the cuff. That's not, I would sure like to see you so-and-so. No, Paul, as oftentimes using this type of language, is pouring out his heart's desire. And so the earnest of this is very important because the blessing lies in the accomplishment of, of what he is teaching here. So it is not only a request, but I think we could even say, scripturally speaking, it is a divine imperative. And we will try to bring that out throughout this message. But he has covered many things doctrinally up to just before right here. In fact, if I don't know, I hate to have you read in other chapters while I'm preaching, but if you just back up to the 30th verse of the previous chapter and start there, he reminds them then, you know, for you've not believed God, you were uh, in times past, but now, you know, uh, God has concluded unbelief, oh, the depth and the riches. So he kind of gives us a crescendo summary right there of the doctrine he's been talking, and then begins this chapter with, now I beseech you by the very mercies of God. 
do this, okay? And don't do that. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Okay, a living sacrifice. What is this speaking to us about to present our bodies a living sacrifice? Well, I've got to say some things to make sure some people don't understand because of some of the things that are out there today. And this does not mean that you should desire and strive to become a martyr and literally have your body killed, burned at the stake, drowned it or whatever like the martyrs of old. That's not what it's teaching at all. Why would I have to say that? Because there are denominations and religions out there that advocate that and always have. The most common one today is that of Islam, right? The greatest glory in that is not staying alive and serving Allah, but dying, dying. And when you really get to looking at this, it's, it laps over into exactly what the Japanese believe with their kamikaze pilots in World War II. The greatest honor was not in staying alive and being obedient, but in dying. Paul is not advocating martyrdom here in that regard. He's not saying go out and do things and get yourself killed, you know, and uh, present your body literally a sacrifice the way the Old Testament animals were killed. That's not it. So we eliminate that right off. But what he is saying when he's saying present our bodies, and the reason I would say he is saying bodies is because when animals were sacrificed, you didn't sacrifice an animal soul. You couldn't do that. You couldn't sacrifice an animal spirit. They don't have one of those. All you could do with an animal was sacrifice their body. And so all there was was wrapped up right there in the animal's body. Whether you're talking about the head, the hooves, the entrails, or whatever it was. So the completeness of the thing is the idea here. Paul used the same word body because he's talking about the complete you. All right? So when you read body, don't just think, well, just my flesh, but it doesn't include my mind. I can think whatever I want to, but my body's supposed to be the sacrifice, not my intellect, not my mind, not my heart, not my... No, the complete you. Okay? The complete you. Your whole body, soul, and spirit in that regard is to be the living sacrifice. Well, sacrifice, of course, is the key word here. What do we mean when we talk about sacrifice? What is involved? What is he telling us as modern-day Christians that we should do just like these Roman Christians to do in presenting our bodies, our whole being... In Christ, a living sacrifice. Well, what is a sacrifice? Christ was a sacrifice, wasn't he? He offered his body, literally. We're not supposed to do that. However, sometimes, you know, people almost do that in these Easter things, don't they? They get carried away and some people even have themselves nailed. We're not talking about that. No, there's, there's no holiness in that. There's no... Uh, scriptural uh, bounds for doing things. That's not what he's talking about. So again, that's why I clarified that. There's people that don't know the difference in that and go out and mutilate their bodies in what they're thinking is a sacrifice. Well, let's sum up a sacrifice with this definition, shall we? Sacrifice is self-denial for the sake of another. That's what Christ sacrificed, was it not? Christ denied himself for us 
and also, of course, to please his father. Did he not? So immediately associate sacrifice with self-denial. We know of people who have sacrificed themselves for others. Men have done it on the battlefield. Parents have done it for children. Fathers, mothers have, have uh, done it for each other, you know, so forth and so on. In every case, when that is done, the proper motive, someone is denying themselves, right, for the sake or benefit of another. And so, of course, immediately we know the sacrifice of Christ is the greatest sacrifice that ever has been made and ever will be made. and cannot be duplicated, nor need it be duplicated. And it surpasses all other uh, sacrifices put together. Greatest achievement, greatest sacrifice there ever was. So if there is a denial of something, every sacrifice costs something, doesn't it? There's times you may want to say something and you have to bite your tongue. You're denying self. You're sacrificing, not lashing out or not saying something, you know, perhaps for the benefit of another. Christ opened not his mouth. Remember that? He didn't have a debate with Pontius Pilate or the Jews. I mean, he'd already taught and so forth and so on. So again, there's always a cost in a real sacrifice. If a Marine jumps on a hand grenade, it's going to cost him his life. And it's going to cost other people that love him a lot for the benefit of others. So if there's no cost, there's no sacrifice. So don't be deceived by the devil in thinking you do something and you're getting a pat on the back because you made a great sacrifice when if it didn't cost you nothing, you didn't do nothing. A real sacrifice costs something. So the beseeching here is, the admonition is, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then there's something said about that sacrifice. So we're talking about denying ourselves for what reason? For what benefit? To whom? Well, twofold. It hadn't went away. Ten Commandments are hanging right here. They're in Exodus chapter 20. The first six deal with God. The first four deal with God. The last six deal with our fellow man. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Love God, love your neighbor. Right? So if we're to be a living sacrifice, we're first of all to do all things, first and foremost to the glory of God, and then to the benefit of our fellow man and our neighbor and our, our fellow man. Right? It costs but it's for our good. The two conditions are listed there in the last part of verse 1, holy and acceptable unto God. Holy. Holy means without sin, doesn't it? As He is holy, be ye holy. The sacrifice of the Old Testament had to be what? It couldn't be the lame, the crippled, the cankered, the eyesores, the cancerous, or anything like that. In fact, there were strict laws in place, weren't they? That the Passover lamb had to be taken up seven days in advance, had to be watched, you know, very carefully scrutinized. If there was anything wrong with that thing, anything abnormal whatsoever, it couldn't be used as a sacrifice. Why? Because it was a picture of 
the impeccable, sinless Son of God who would be the sacrifice. So again, we don't bring our trash to the Lord and call it sacrifice. We are to be holy in that regard. How do we be holy? Well, you can only be holy by two things and they go together. One's eradicating sin and being obedient. That's, that's the only thing, there's two things that are going to make anybody holy, and they stand in proportion. You can't be obedient as long as you tolerate sin. And, you know, if you get rid of sin, you're automatically going to be obedient, and it's a step in the right direction to holiness. So, without sin, and again, holiness is always in the proportion of the presence and practice of sin. How holy are you today? Well, how much sin is in your life? How Christ-like are you today? You know? You can say, well, I do this, and I'll do this, and I do this, and I have the mind of Christ and all this. Well, okay, but don't overlook the sin part. Is there, you know, is there sin hiding there somewhere? If there is, then that's a hindrance to holiness. So never lose sight of that. The devil, the devil will pump you up. You know, that you're being all kinds of holy. He'll, he'll coach you on holy. Because you do, 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 do. But the last thing he wants you ever to do is to acknowledge sin in your life and do something about that. As long as you got the rug over the sin in your life, he's got you. And you can go to church and you can pay your tithes and you can read your Bible and you can pray and do all kinds of things and claim to be holy, but unrepented of sin has really got you in a noose. He's not going to tell you that, but God the Holy Spirit will if you're his child. And acceptable unto God. This is very important. A lot of people would agree with what I've said thus far about being a living sacrifice and to be ye holy as he is holy and be obedient and so forth and so on. But acceptable unto God's where we're going to lose a lot of people. And that basically boils down to God's will, God's way. We are to live according to to this book, his rules, his ways, we're not free to make up our own. And again, this is where Satan would love to employ our hearts and minds. Well, you can do this, it's just good as that. Or you can make up for that over here, this, that, and the other. Again, remember the Old Testament sacrifices. They had to be acceptable according to the dictates that God laid down. And, of course, I won't get into this, but, you know, it wasn't just the animal. It was the priest. It was the right. It was the manner. It was the method. Everything had to be done tit for tat, or it was not acceptable unto God, was it? Case in point, remember Aaron's sons? They weren't, they weren't offering a sacrifice, a lamb or a bullock, but they offered strange fire unto the Lord. Did God say, well, that's okay, that's close enough. You know, their hearts were in the right place. He killed them dead on the spot. As an example that what he said was acceptable was his rule, and anything short of that was not acceptable. That's our God. That's what's been lost today, is embracing the God of the Bible in his purity and his holiness. We've got preachers and churches that run around saying, you can cut this corner, you can cut that corner, because God loves you and it's all right. No, it's not all right. Mm -hmm. God is still God. The force of these Ten Commandments are still just as much in force with God as they ever were. Yeah. 
The law is holy. The law is good. By the law is the knowledge of sin. And the gospel of Christ is supposed to be just as pure. We don't have any right to sugarcoat it, salt it, dilute it, cook it, overcook it, undercook it, or anything. But to deliver it as it was delivered unto us and as Christ and the apostles delivered it. I mean, to a Christian, we're all about being acceptable to God, whether we're acceptable to anybody else or not. Are we not? If not, we're wasting our time. Because if I please you today, you'll change your mind next week and I'll have to do something else to please you. And that's what we've got going on. Entertainment today in churches, right? If we were focused on that which is acceptable unto God... There'd be a lot of cleanup in a hurry, wouldn't there? And there needs to be. And maybe it's in our lives or in our church or in our home or whatever. But acceptable unto God is nothing short of being obedient unto God. Doing what God says, the way God said it, not doing what God said because God said don't do it. That's acceptable unto God. And in fact, the latter part of verse 2 makes mention here of and, uh, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God has revealed His will. We don't, we don't have to run around. And you shouldn't insult God or the faith by saying this, run around. Well, I don't know what God would have me to do. Read the book. Amen. Everything we need to know is right here in this book. Well, I don't know what... Read. And if you read long enough, whatever it is you, you think you don't know, you, I'm, I'm, you're going to come to a conclusion, I think. But acceptable with God, His requirements, His command, His book, His standards, that's what we're talking about. Perfect example, Cain and Abel, before I leave the point, right? One did it God's way, one did it His way. Who was accepted, who was not. And then we say, and or we come to the latter part of verse 1, and it says all of this, the living sacrifice and the conditions of doing it and how it's done, which is your reasonable service. It is, Christian, your reasonable service. God the Holy Spirit said that. And that's why it's hard to title this living sacrifice because the force of our reasonable service here should hit us all right between the eyes. You know, there's a scripture in the Bible that says when we've done all that we've been told to do and it's all wrapped up and everything, and I'm paraphrasing, then all we're going to say is I just did what was my duty to do. Reasonable service. And I'll harp on this a little bit because it's a crying shame and it's a disgrace and a dishonor for church members or Christians to find it so unreasonable to serve the Lord. It's not an unreasonable thing at all if you're a Christian. It's not unreasonable to come to church or to pray or to read the Bible or, or to be humble and tenderhearted and all the things that the Bible is full of that we are to practice and do None of them are unreasonable. And you know what makes it not unreasonable? I'm going to put it to you just like this. You're bought with a price. You're bought by the greatest sacrifice that there ever has been and ever will be. 
the value of that sacrifice cannot be estimated. It's so infinite in value. And yet if you are a child of God, it was for you. That makes anything and everything God asks of you and me absolutely reasonable. I hope you see that today. You can't be obedient unto God unless you accept this fact. God is not being unreasonable with His children. Think about it. When you were a child and you wanted something and mom or dad said no, what did you think about mom and dad? They're being unreasonable. I want that. I need that. Were they being unreasonable? Probably not in most cases. They were probably being wise because they knew better than us, right? God forbid that any Christian would read the Bible and when it says, be this and don't be that, say, oh, well, that's just unreasonable. I can't do, I can't do that. That's just, God's asking more of me than I can, than I, no, He's not. He not, he's not asking more. He's not demanding more. He's not being cruel. He's not, he's not being a taskmaster master to us in that regard. Those things are there for your good and my good. Because in the doing of them is where the greatest blessings lie. Especially if you're doing them out of, and this is the only way they are to be done, the only way obedience will be rewarded is out of love and if it's out of love, then you're admitting it's absolutely reasonable. He gave His all for me. Amen. He gave me the indwelling of His Spirit. He's come for me again. He's given me untold blessings in the meantime, and i got more promised on the horizon. And the least little things that I can do, you know, in my little time here of a vapor upon this earth, it's more than reasonable. Embrace it today if you have not already. And you can be obedient out of love, not out of, well, I've got to write this check. It's almost time for church. You know, what kind of attitude is that toward a God who loved us? Amen. From the beginning, sent His Son to die for us. And I could go on and on about what He suffered. Reasonable service. Oh, I hope you see that today. If you get nothing else today, I hope you see today, if you are a born-again child of God, that you have a reasonable service staring you in the face. And everything that God has written in this book and asks, commands, or makes an imperative to us, it's reasonable. Meaning He has every right. In a day in which we're listening to the creature running around whining and crying about our rights, God has a right. You're bought with a price today. His grace for us demands our service to Him. How is this accomplished? Quickly, let's deal with these two points before we wrap up here. We said it in the beginning. Be not and be. Be not what? Conformed to this world. You can't follow Christ with one foot in the world and one foot... In fact, I've never tried walking... Very far on one foot. If you you just got to hop along, 
But that seems to be the state of a lot of Christians. They want one foot on one side of the fence and one foot on the other side of the fence. Don't be conformed to the world. Conformed again to fashion or to pattern. And I, when I think of a pattern, I, my mind always goes back to my childhood, to my mother, my sisters, and other women that I knew in rural Arkansas. And I remember when I was a little kid, we'd go to the fabric store, the store that sold fabric downtown, and mother would buy fabric, and she'd look on the rack and buy a pattern, the dress patterns or whatever they were. I, mean, I can just remember it vividly over and over, laying out those little thin brown paper patterns with all the little lines on them and cutting the fabric and then doing the sewing. You know, they were conforming a dress to that pattern or whatever it was. They were conforming that, that fabric to that. And they were good at it. And when they got done, guess what? It looked just like that pretty picture on that envelope that that pattern was in. Be not conformed to the world. The world's pattern, the world's trend, the world's ideas, the world's opinions, the world's preaching, they're no good. They're no good for the Christian. Because as we studied in Sunday school, the devil's the one teaching that class. Okay? Be not conformed to the world. Christ said you can't serve God and mammon. In the world, you're going to have trouble. Remember, they hated me before they hated you. The world is your enemy. And yet the world is to whom we're to minister to. Ironic, isn't it? So, don't pattern yourself after the world. In fact, if you pattern yourself or think or are obedient to Christ and have the mind of Christ, you're going to find most of the things you think are exactly the opposite of the world. It's a pretty good measuring stick. Most things the world thinks is all right. It's not all right. Because the world is a world of ungodly fallen people. And that's where those ideas and practices and habits come from. Be not conformed to the world. In other words, as the old saying goes, don't go with the flow. That flow is a broad road, the Bible describes, that will take you to where you don't want to go. We often use this phrase also. To be conformed to the world is to go downstream with the dead fish that are already floating that way. If Christ has saved you, you're a living fish. You're supposed to be the salmon that's headed upstream. And that's about what life seems like to Christians that are being obedient to Christ. I don't care what generation they've lived in or this generation all. You know what you're doing? If you're being obedient to Christ, you're constantly bumping into dead fish going that way. If you're not, you might ought to check your direction. You may be going the same way they are. And if you are, you're backslidden. The current can get the best of any of us if we don't watch it. Be not conformed with the world. It's a sad thing because this is nothing short of compromise. And I've seen so much of it, it makes me sick. People who are a Christian, well, I believe, I believe this would be all right. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Well, I don't believe God would mind. What? Quit making up, the, quit making up your own rules, your own standards. When you compromise, you're being conformed to the world. What did the Lord say about it? Boy, 
If people would just stop, if God's people would just stop and read what God has said and forget about what statistics say, what the culture says, what's popular, what's trending, and what's not, it's where we need to be. Do what you got to do, but be obedient to God. Don't believe what people say. But it's there. I'll say this and we'll press on to the last point. The tendency to be conformed to the world is just like barometric pressure or gravity. It's there all the time. You're not going to escape it in this world. Anywhere you go on this planet, gravitational force is going to be there. Atmospheric pressure is going to be there. That's the best way I know to put it. That's what we face every day when we wake up in this world. Is the temptation. Temptations daily. To be conformed to the thoughts, ideas, trends of the world. I don't need to go into any detail. But I will for one or two points. The recent start on abortion. What did God say about abortion? Nobody cared about what God said. Nobody cares now but God's people. What does God say about homosexuality? What did God say about a sexual revolution that preceded the homosexual revolution? You know, Nobody cares what God says except God's people. We want to do what God says. We live by God's standard. It don't matter what the culture says. It don't matter what the church, the preacher says. They can be wrong too. What saith the Lord? If you believe what you believe and you can give chapter and verse for it, you're in good shape. If you can't, you're in trouble. You've already conformed somewhere. Final point is, be ye transformed. We talked about this some last week. Be ye transformed. There's already, if you're a child of God, a transformation that took place. It's called the new birth. When you were converted... You became alive to Christ and dead to sin. So there was a radical transformation that occurred then and there within your soul. But there's also a transformation that has been taking place outwardly ever since then. And we call that process sanctification. Okay? So it's kind of, kind of two things here. Again, radical transformation when you're saved. I mean, you were without Christ. Then you were with Christ. You didn't have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You were deaf, dumb, and blind spiritually. Now you're made alive. You're a new creation in Christ. The old nature died. The new nature is now in charge on the throne of your heart. Christ is. The devil got booted out. Not that he's going to leave you alone, but he's no longer. You and him are not running the show anymore. And as I've often said, you know, uh, in our lost condition, you know who's sitting on the throne of your heart? You are. And you know who's sitting at your right hand telling you what to do and the decisions to make like one of the young kings in the book of Kings who's seven or eight years old, the devil. And you think you're totally in charge when in reality it's the devil whispering in your ear. But when God saves you, guess what? Self gets kicked off the throne, gets kicked off. And now Christ is there. And it's our reasonable service to serve him and to be like him conformed unto him. Romans 8, 29, predestinated to be conformed to the image of the Son. Conformity to Christ. 
Remember this word transform is the same word transfigure when Christ was transfigured on the mount. So again, don't think this is a little bitty thing that don't mean very much. How big a thing do you think it was when he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John? You think that's just a little thing? Just lasted a little while, didn't amount to too much? It was a big thing. I mean, when Christ unveiled his, his glory, there before those three and Moses and Elijah appeared wow this is one place where technology is good because other generations without the visual things we have you know how could you imagine that in your mind but if you've ever seen a Star Wars or sci-fi you know exactly probably now what you know we got an idea what that was like right I mean wow unbelievable and one day we'll get to see it for ourselves and we'll get to abide in it forever and ever, by the way. But that's the same word. So again, it's not a little thing, it's a big thing. And when God saves a sinner and starts molding and making and working in that individual to make it, that individual him or her Christ-like, that's a big thing. And it's a noticeable thing. And it should be a talked about thing in that respect. And this happens, of course, and we're not have time to elaborate on it, but what is it done by the renewing of your mind? You know, it, it, your mind, your soul is like a battery that runs down on its own. That's why we're here. That's why we come here. That's why you should read your Bible. That's the charger. God the Holy Spirit, God the Word here. Renewing your mind. Oh, I wish we'd have just got a bit ghost of it when God saved us and it lasted a lifetime. But it don't work that way. We wouldn't have to live by faith then. We'd, we'd lived on self. But it is a day-by-day day renewing. Every time you start your car, the alternator's charging the battery. That's the way it's supposed to be with us. Every day we live, we're supposed to be renewing our mind, which is part of the transforming process where we become more and more like Christ. And like Peter and John, people look at it and say, well, them people ain't much, but you know what? They, they're like that guy from Galilee. They had been with Jesus. They had the mind of Christ. And I must close with this final thought. As it says that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God, here's where a lot of reform takes place again. Well, I think God would like this, so I'm going to do that. Well, I, I, I'm going to give this up, and I think God would be pleased with that, and he'll probably give me an attaboy for that. Again, conform, transform, reform. All right? We're not to be conformed to the world. We're supposed to be transformed to be more Christ-like. And reform is of our own doing and accomplishes nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because reform is always motivated and accomplished externally. You know what the real difference between reform and transform is? Transform is where God works and starts within. And it works itself out. Reform is on the outside totally and never does anything inwardly all kinds of people reform and call it transform all people re a lot of people reform and say them they're not conforming but if it don't start within by the power of god and the holy spirit then it's not going to mount to the philippines we close let's emphasize i beseech you
therefore, by the mercies of God, present your, and I'm going to use this language, your whole being a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable why? Because He's done for more for you (laughs) than anybody ever could, and you can never make it up. That's what makes it so reasonable. And you should have a desire to do that. And you should want to do it out of love because you love Him. And you want to please Him, whether it pleases your mom, your dad, or your brother, your sister, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, like anybody. Jesus said it. If a man doesn't hate, willing to love, leave all of these earthly attachments, can't be my disciple. Christ must be first and foremost. It is the reasonable service to every blood-bought child of God. Amen?